0: In
1: terms of affordable housing, we have a major, major crisis, not just in California, but in fact all over this country. And we are not going to solve that crisis unless we talk about that crisis and unless we come up with some very specific ideas as to how in the wealthiest country in the history of the world, we end the absurdity of a half a million Americans being homeless and so many people spending 40, 50, 60 percent of their limited incomes in housing. That's what today is about.
2: That's Bernie Sanders during a California town hall last month to discuss affordable housing. It seems like a natural fit for the socialist. He's recently spoken about the stability that a rent controlled apartment in Brooklyn gave him as a kid. But Bernie's actually a little late on this issue.
1: If you lived in that house, the federal government would subsidize a mortgage for you. But if you lived in that house, the federal government discriminated against you and made it almost impossible for many of these people to be able to get mortgages. That is a part of our American legacy that we need to address head on. And we can't just pretend it didn't happen because it continues to have effects today.
2: That, of course, is Senator Elizabeth Warren, in the spot from June, introducing a plan to help minorities become homeowners. You kind of have to see it. We'll put a link in the show page. But Warren is standing in front of this long, brightly painted concrete wall in a residential neighborhood of Detroit. Developers of a white subdivision built the half-mile wall in 1941. They wanted to assure the feds that the development would keep black neighbors out. It's a monument to racism in Detroit but it's also a reminder of the enormous role that Washington has played in designing the market for housing. Housing is the key to social mobility, wealth, and personal well-being. Are you ready to explain the housing crisis?
1: Always. In 30 minutes or less, right?
2: This is Jenny Schutz, a fellow at Brookings who is an expert on housing. Today on What Next, I asked Jenny why Democrats are finally talking about housing again and what they're saying. I'm Henry Grabar, filling in for Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stay with us.
1: This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
2: Let's start with Castro. So the federal government provides renter assistance. Um, to families who earn under 50% of the median income in their area. And, and this program is severely underfunded, uh, and so only uh, one in four families who are eligible actually receive one of these vouchers. And Castro wants to expand the voucher program so that it covers every family who's eligible. Um, what's your reaction to that proposal?
1: I think it's conceptually a great idea. Um, you know, we haven't funded housing assistance adequately in the way that we have, for instance, something like food stamps or, say, Medicaid. Those are programs that are entitlements. So any family that falls below a certain income and meets other criteria gets the money. It's not contingent on Congress setting aside enough money in the budget to pay for it. It's just automatic that you get it. We've never treated housing assistance that way. And so essentially what Castro is proposing is to put housing assistance on a par with other social safety net programs. If you are poor enough to qualify, you get the assistance. And we're not going to depend on Congress deciding how generous it wants to feel uh, year to year. So I think in many ways, that's that's a great idea. It's long past time for us to treat housing as a serious need. It's definitely going to cost some money. Um, So to make this happen, it would have to go through Congress in the first place, um, which raises some questions whether or not this is a feasible uh, proposal politically. But it's certainly a bold step.
2: Why don't we move on to Kamala Harris? Kamala Harris wants to propose a tax credit for renting, but it's not just for low-income families. It's for people making up to $100,000 a year and in some cases up to $125,000 a year. How does this idea strike you? Do people making $125,000 a year really need assistance from the federal government to pay their rent?
1: Well, if you ask people in San Francisco who are making $125,000 a year, they would say yes. Um, there's a, I mean, I think there's a very valid question. If we haven't covered the housing needs for really poor families ever – Is our first priority going to be paying sort of for very high rents in expensive places for relatively affluent households? Um, You know, you definitely see more households in the upper income ranges in expensive places who seem to be spending a lot of their income. But to a certain extent, you know, that there's also a choice to live in an expensive place and local governments in those areas have made housing more expensive. So in some ways, this would be the federal government rewarding local governments for having made bad policy choices, um, which doesn't set up great incentives. And it's also just going to be very, very expensive to cover People up to hundred thousand or one hundred twenty-five thousand um, dollars. We're talking about some real money, and you could think of other ways to spend money on housing-related needs without necessarily subsidizing people this far up the income distribution.
2: Right. So I'm in I'm in New York, and you're in Washington, and Harris is from California. The issue of um, struggling with uh, rent payments, even though you're making six figures. Um, might be a familiar predicament in the places where we live. Is that a nationwide issue?
1: It's really not. Um, So people who are in the sort of middle 60% of the income distribution are are mostly doing okay. Um, You really see the pinch in these very expensive places. And I think politically it's going to be a little bit hard telling somebody who makes $50,000 a year living in Omaha – why we should be giving federal tax dollars to somebody making twice their income living in San Francisco. Uh,
2: Another question I have about a policy like Harris's where you're essentially subsidizing high rents is if it encourages landlords to create high rents because suddenly – there's that much more of a willingness to pay that the landlord might as well raise the rent from, you know, 2000 to $3,000 because it makes no difference to the tenant because the federal government is picking up the tab. Um, so why not raise the rent? Is there any evidence that programs that provide rent subsidies would actually cause rents to go up in some of these places?
1: That's absolutely a concern with a policy like this. I think it's definitely a concern if we give a lot more people potentially quite a lot of money and it's really tied to their spending on housing, that landlords in the region will know that this is going on and that they have an incentive to raise the rent at least somewhat to try to capture that. It's particularly a concern in places like California, Boston, New York, D.C., the places where local governments have made it very hard to build. So the reason those places are so expensive in the first place is because we have a lot of restrictions on new development. And so we have a constrained supply, and then you're going to throw more money at the demand side of this. Almost certainly that's going to cause some increase in rents.
2: So let's talk about the supply. We know that America is building basically fewer homes per capita than at any time since World War II. That's one of the reasons that it is so expensive to rent in these metro areas. What are the policies that cities and suburbs have enacted that are making it so hard to build housing and why are they doing that?
1: (laughs) The local government essentially has to grant explicit permission for every new house that gets built anywhere within its uh, its jurisdiction. And um, they particularly like to put restrictions on building apartments. So every city in the US, every suburb, every small town has made it harder to build apartment buildings than to build single family detached houses. But if you think about it from an affordability perspective, renting an apartment in a multifamily building is almost always going to be cheaper than renting or buying a single family house in the same location. So what we've done is both make it hard to build just anything. um, So put constraints on the amount of new housing that can be built. And we're essentially requiring that the housing that does get built is more expensive than it needs to be, and maybe more expensive than the market would bear.
2: Maybe I'm naive in even asking this, but what are the reasons that they give for prohibiting new apartments from being built?
1: Well, they usually couch it in terms like traffic congestion and parking and so forth. Um, because those are at least concrete concerns that people can understand, um, but we had we have sort of an interesting case going on in the D.C. Metro. One of the pretty affluent, highly educated suburbs, Montgomery County, is proposing allowing what they call accessory dwelling units, which is essentially a, a backyard cottage or a basement apartment in single-family neighborhoods. And people show up to the neighbor, to the meetings protesting against this and say. I don't want to have strangers walking by my house. And just because people are trying to get out of crime-filled ghetto neighborhoods, meaning Washington, D.C., doesn't mean they should get to move to our leafy green affluent suburb. So there's a lot of racial and economic discrimination that's lurking under the surface. Sometimes it gets said overtly and sometimes it's just sort of implied. Um, But that's, you know, I think also one of the reasons why we're seeing a focus on this um, emphasis to sort of break down some of the Racial barriers and the racial gaps in access to high opportunity neighborhoods, local land use is a huge part of that.
2: This is a, a major issue. And um, several of the candidates, it turns out, have turned their attention towards it. For example, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren has a proposal to establish a $10 billion competitive grant program. And in order to apply for these grants, she says that cities states and regions must reform land use rules to allow for well-located affordable housing units. Is that the kind of proposal from the federal government that could finally break down the barriers in um, cities and suburbs uh, to constructing uh, affordable housing and actually just any housing at all?
1: So a couple of the candidates are proposing some sort of federal either carrot or stick. Um, I think it's important to realize that because these laws are adopted by local governments and the power is really granted to local governments from state governments, there's a limit to what the federal government will be able to do. I mean, the federal government can't go in and just override local zoning. Um, It can push back a little bit. As Senator Warren is proposing, it can essentially offer a carrot. We'll give you some extra money for things that you like building parks. Um, if you change your zoning and allow more housing to be built, um, Cory Booker and uh, and Castro are proposing a slightly different method, which is we will withhold funding that we already give you um, through transportation grants to make the same kinds of zoning changes. So I think it's promising that some of the candidates are at least addressing supply constraints and local zoning as a problem that needs to be fixed. They're you know essentially stating the federal government has an interest in having these local uh, governments have better policies. So I think in in some senses, all of these proposals are sort of symbolic. Um, It's saying the federal government has a stake in this and is going to pay attention to it, but not necessarily that the federal government has huge influence that it can use directly.
2: One of the most radical ideas comes from New Jersey Senator Cory Booker. He's borrowed an idea from academic economists called Baby Bonds. The idea is to give every child in the United States a little nest egg that would be worth tens of thousands of dollars by the time they're adults. Kids with low-income parents would get more money than kids with rich parents, helping to bridge the racial wealth gap.
1: This would disproportionately help African Americans because they tend to have lower wealth levels, um, but it wouldn't be explicitly tied to race. You know this links back into housing because obviously one of the big hurdles to becoming a homeowner is to have enough money for a down payment. And we know, for instance, that most middle-income families, uh, kids who grew up in middle-income families and their parents were homeowners, when they buy their first house, they get money from their parents or from their grandparents or aunts and uncles to help with the down payment. If your family doesn't have money, they can't do that. And so this would be a substitute for family wealth to allow people to get into first-time home homeownership. Um, but it's not strictly limited to that. This would also be a pot of funds that could be used, say, to pay for college or to start a small business. Um, so it's a nice flexible pot of funds that could be used for lots of different things. So
2: Cory Booker isn't the only candidate who has an idea like this. Elizabeth Warren has an idea for down payment assistance. Um, That would be available for people who live in redlined or segregated neighborhoods. Do you perceive that as a a kind of having a different effect? Is that a better idea uh, for sort of redressing the inequalities that exist in housing?
1: Whether it's better or not depends on whether you think that we should be encouraging more people to become homeowners. Um, So hers is tied directly towards getting people to buy houses, and rather than targeting it by family income, it's targeted by the location. So the idea is that there are neighborhoods that uh, didn't have access to credit because they were majority African American. And so this is partly to revitalize those neighborhoods as well as to help people who lived in the neighborhoods have access to a mortgage. Um, I'd rather give people the Choice of where they buy a house. Um, So rather than say, if we're gonna give you down payment assistance, it has to be in a certain neighborhood. In particular, encouraging lower income families to buy homes in places that haven't had a lot of home price appreciation seems to me like we're sort of stacking the deck against them. If we're gonna encourage you to buy a house You should have the option to buy someplace where housing values will go up in the future um, rather than tying it to a specific place. Um, I like the idea of giving people money and letting them choose. Not everybody wants to become a homeowner, needs to. If you have a pot of money that you can tap into for things like education and training, that gives you more flexibility. And it's a little bit less the federal government leaning on the scale saying everybody should become a homeowner.
2: Right. In some ways, her plan resembles a plan put out by South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg, which he calls the Douglas Plan, and this would allow residents who have been living in sort of underserved, historically redlined, segregated neighborhoods, it would give them a kind of grant to help them work towards homeownership in those neighborhoods. Again, seems to be Um, focused more on uh, getting people into homeownership, but also on neighborhood revitalization, which to some extent is um, a kind of localized problem too, right? Like this is not a proposal that seems targeted at some of these wealthy coastal metros that we've been talking about um, before in Massachusetts and California and New York.
1: That's exactly right. The housing part of the Douglas plan is really focused on neighborhood revitalization in cities that have had long-term population decline and have high vacancy rates. And actually that's explicit in the plan. Um, It's set up as a pilot program where cities could apply to HUD to be part of it and HUD would decide which cities uh, could participate in part based on whether they have a lot of vacant properties because the idea is really to give city-owned vacant homes to people who already live in those neighborhoods to become homeowners. So it's, it's partially help for people in those neighborhoods, but it, much of it is really aimed at helping the, the cities and the local governments kind of unload their unwanted real estate um, and hopefully jumpstart revitalization those cities.
2: This raises a difficult question. Harvard economist Raj Chetty studied HUD's moving to opportunity project and found that the best thing we can do for poor kids is get them into a good neighborhood. In short, zip code is destiny. But for obvious reasons, politicians are often more interested in helping their neighborhoods than helping people get out of them.
1: It's a central tension in housing policies, and it's probably never going to be resolved. Um, There are arguments on both sides. I mean, certainly the the research coming out of the Moving to Opportunity project is really strong that kids do better, not just in the short run, but over their entire lifetime, are more likely to go to college, to have higher earnings, to be healthier um, if they grow up in neighborhoods with low poverty rates, um, with good schools and, and community assets. But it's very hard for people who, for politicians who represent areas that are poor, to say we're just going to walk away from the people who are here. Not everybody is going to be able to leave a high poverty neighborhood. Not everybody wants to leave. People have social networks and ties there, um, and so the the tension is really: do we spend more resources trying to get particularly families with kids to move to other places? What do we do for the people who are left? Um, you know, the the cities like South Bend that have these long term vacancy rates that wasn't caused by a bad housing market. It's caused by problems in the labor market. It's going to be very hard to solve the vacancy problem and sort of declining neighborhoods just by housing assistance. And so I think it's worth asking the question, is there something other than housing that we can do to help those cities and neighborhoods?
2: One thing that I'm taking away from this conversation is that there are uh, so many different issues in different parts of the country. Are you hopeful that there can be A housing policy that um, meets the needs of all these places at the same time and strikes everybody as as fair?
1: It's very hard to devise a coherent national housing policy that works in all places. Um, And I think you see that reflected in some of the proposals. You know, some of them, like Elizabeth Warren's, are really complicated. They've got some programs that focus on rental and some on home ownership, and she's got carve-outs for places with low values and places with high values. So it's difficult to come up with a coherent policy. Some of this involves rethinking the policies that we already have at the national level, particularly tax policies that play out differently in different locations and thinking about whether you know that's essentially fair and we want to do that. Um, because we have put so much of the responsibility for providing housing on local governments, you just get enormous variation. And I think having a a conversation about, is it okay for entire cities or regions or states even not to be building enough housing? What's the impact on the national economy? You know, it's a good time to start having that conversation. There aren't going to be easy answers, um, because the truth is that any policy change is going to create some winners and losers, and people will push back against that.
2: Jenny, thank you so much for coming on. This has been great. Thanks, Henry. Jenny Schutz is a fellow at the Brookings Institute. That's the show. I'm Henry Grabar. You can find me over on Twitter at Henry Grabar. This episode of What Next was produced by Samantha Lee. Melissa Kaplan and Merit Jacob provided production assistance. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.
1: I mean, really, if they would just let us design federal housing policy, we could solve all of this.
2: Yeah. All right. Well, maybe on our next episode, we can uh, take out a pen and paper